Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Last week I got to sit kind of under that tree and hear all of creation sing with God, specifically the number of cicadas. Like that was really helpful to remember that all of creation speaks and glorifies him, even through the rattling of these cicadas. Um, I'll go ahead, I know it's hot, so let's get right to it. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians 3. We're going to be in 14 through 19 today. As you're turning, I just want to remind you about our members meeting next Sunday night. Uh, That's important and exciting because we will potentially and hopefully be affirming and welcoming new members uh, to our body. Uh, And we also want to take, it's not going to be a vote or anything like that for this kind of stuff, but we want to talk together about some things that we've been working on since the beginning of the year. Since we worked and talked about membership and especially of those that are believers that would be underneath the age of 18. We talked about that before and the fact that right now our constitution doesn't, what holds them from membership until that time. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. No specific decisions we made then, but we need to talk about it as a congregation. So... Please come back next Sunday, of course, to worship in the morning, but we'll also have a members meeting next Sunday night. Uh, We'll also talk a little bit and remind ourselves of communion. The Lord's Supper, we will be celebrating in two weeks. So not next Sunday, but the Sunday after, the 16th. That's important, of course, because we are sharing in Christ together. And so for those of you that are here, please continue to come back so we can worship together this way. But also those of you that are at home right now watching and partaking in the sense of this opportunity together via you know, different media, we would ask you to take this as much as we can seriously. And, and we want to love you and we want your love together to show the love of Christ as we share in communion. So we realize that the church body has been kind of pulled apart from COVID, um, understanding that this is difficult, but we'd ask all of us as much as we can to share together in the Lord's Supper in two weeks. We'll keep those uh, spots back there, so feel free to stay in your cars if you're not comfortable. Not a problem, but we want to, as much as we can truly be together to worship and celebrate the Lord's Supper. That'll be in, in two weeks, August 16th. Okay, let's read Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. This is God's word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, we come before you in praise together. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lord, you will fulfill all of your plans, and so to that end, we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we ask that you would feed us this morning from your word, enlighten our hearts that we might behold you and obey. Thank you for every spiritual blessing that you have given us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to start to ask you kind of a a little bit of a question. How, when you consider, perhaps maybe you do not have children, but all of you at one time were children, 
Perhaps you had one or two parents, maybe you came from a good home or a rough home, but everyone at least understands that children need to be raised, that children don't start out mature. Um, and how, how would we then go about raising a baby or a child to be a functioning, responsible adult? Now, I'll, I'll take a little slightly different direction, even more keenly here. Not only a child, whoo, everybody. All right. Yeah, this won't be distracting at all. That's good. Oh. All right. So what, one step further, how would we raise a king from a, from, a, from a child or a baby, from an infant, all the way to being a king? What would be the steps in that process for us to do? We could probably list off a few things, but we all recognize there'd be an entire process for us to go through to work from a child or a baby all the way up through their maturation into what they're supposed to be, a king or a ruler in some way. What Paul does in the book of Ephesians, and I'm not just talking about here in the prayer, what Paul does in the book of Ephesians is like what a parent or a guardian does when they set out to help a child become the person that they are supposed to be, the ones that they are born to be. Becoming like a Christian, becoming a Christian is like being born into a family of greatness, like literally actually being born into a new family. I mean, the Bible talks about it being a new birth whereby not only are we family members in name, but also legally and by blood and by characteristic and by our likeness and by our DNA and by privilege and potential to become all the things that our father is. We, we are little ones in him. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is like the person who is tasked with helping the king raise a son to be a king someday. The child truly is the son of a king, a full-fledged heir. He is made in the likeness of his father. He has every opportunity, every support, every resource at his disposal to be the king that he is to be. He truly is of royal blood, but he's still a child, perhaps even an infant, a baby. He hasn't hit puberty yet. He isn't able to do the tasks of a grown man simply because he has little boy muscles. He's small. He hasn't learned the skills of administration or stewardship or anything in these kingly duties. He can't handle adult responsibilities. He hasn't developed into the leader that he needs to be, learning how to do administrative tasks and grow in wisdom and strength and discernment. He doesn't have any of these things. He's still a child. He hasn't grown up to imitate his father quite yet. He hasn't trained or worked out or matured in all the areas that are important for one man to be a king. In short, again, he's still a child. He is still immature. This is where we find ourselves in the book of Ephesians, as Paul is talking to us, as young ones, immature, untrained, even ignorant of our father's ways and identity having every bit of the DNA and legal right and even the perfect promises that we are and will be the son of the king, 
Paul is the guardian who cares deeply that each of us would grow into the people that God truly has made us, sons and daughters of the king. Chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians have given us a picture of who we really are in Christ. He's really kind of pulling back the veil, showing us what's actually happened in Christ Jesus and therefore can be named for us who we are. And he really has given us quite an earful. We're assured of the hope that those who love Jesus Christ are held in the grip of God through Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. God has, here we go, if you weren't here for the first two chapters, let me just list a few things that God has done. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us before the foundations of the world. He has predestined us for the adoption as sons. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us of our sins. He has made us his inheritance. He has, healed, he has sealed us with the Spirit. And you know all of this is done in Christ Jesus. He has taken a dead, enslaved, condemned person and made them alive in Christ. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. He has created us for good works that he has already prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. He has taken those who were far off, who did not know him, were strangers and aliens, and made them fellow citizens and heirs and saints and members of the household of God. So much so that they are joined together, building up a dwelling place for God. In other words, I guess he could have just said this, they're a Christian. Now, he freights a lot of stuff, though, that's going on here. Their identity is sure in Christ. They know that all this is true. You are born again by faith into the family of God. And that means that all this stuff that I just said is true about you and me. It's the truth. But this doesn't mean that the day that you and I trusted Christ, that we became mature, fully functioning, responsible Christians. I think if we're honest, a lot of us kind of slide into believing that that is somehow true because of what we learn in the first two chapters of Ephesians. It's kind of the ditch of laziness and apathy when we kind of first hear these things. What? I'm secure in Christ? I mean, he's chosen me. He's forgiven me of all my sins. Wow. I mean, that's great news. And I mean, it's really great because it means I'm good. In a sense, I know the love of God. And even when I stray, that he will be good. And I'm in good shape then because of what he's done. Oftentimes, the doctrines of grace that God has acted in Christ and that we have no power to affect our own salvation can leave us thinking really like Christian fatalists, like hard determinists, like whatever happens, happens. We can't do much about it. But that's actually not what the Bible says at all. And as we get into Ephesians here, the rest of the half, we realize that Paul's building to something. He's helping us understand that even though these things are so true, they are not for us to say, good thing we're covered, now I can live however I want to. As we learn today, the fact that we are complete in Christ, secure in his finished work, guaranteed of the resurrection and eternal life, all these wonderful things, doesn't mean that our sanctification is automatic. It doesn't mean that once we trust Jesus as our Savior, that we are automatically like him in every way. Consider for a minute, we don't go from being a son of the devil to slipping a switch and being a mature one of God all of a sudden. We are born into infancy in Christ. We are born again drinking milk. 
and starting out as babies in the things of the Lord. So Paul, what he is trying to do in this book is raise us to maturity, is actually help us to grow in Christ-likeness. He knows that he is talking to Christians who have the righteousness of Christ, who have been secured in him, but who are not yet holy, not complete, not mature in Christ. And one of his goals in this letter is to help them and us to grow into Christian maturity. The way that we know this is that the book of Ephesians doesn't stop at the end of chapter 2. If that were true, it would be much different. Look, this, this book contains some of the sweetest theology and truths that are foundational for us as Christians. It gives us much confidence and hope in God alone. But it doesn't end in theological bliss. And therefore, we're just left to figure out what happens afterwards. Paul is not, uh, you've probably heard this term, an ivory tower theologian. He's not just up there thinking about these things, giving all these wonderful thoughts about who we are in Christ and then leaves us to figure it all out once we get back to real life. No, but he realized that who we are in Christ has an extremely important connection to how we live now and the next day and the next over and over again. We know that in the second half of Ephesians, chapters four through six, we are going to get real practical applications to what he said, exhortations and calls for us to obey in certain ways based on who we are, based on the things that he has shown us to be true about ourselves from Ephesians one and two. Like we, we need to know who we are and then be encouraged in doing the right things. We all know that, but actually, Paul is telling us that we need something even more than that to actually make us mature. I think you and I actually think that that's enough. We think that if we understand our identity and then we get the practical application that we can work forward and like, okay, I know who I am in Christ. I know what I'm supposed to do in Christ. I should be good. Our passage today makes it very clear that that is not enough. The fact that he goes to prayer to asking God to strengthen his people, both to be strengthened in their inner being and to love and know the love of Christ, shows us that what he is calling us to do is humanly impossible. And so as he does this, he's teaching us a great deal. Um, today we read a prayer, a prayer that is because the task that's set before us is beyond human ability. Paul is not telling these brothers and sisters to become mature only. But instead, he is praying that God would make them mature. And I love that he not only prays like in his closet alone to God, but he's also letting them know that this is true. And therefore, he instructs us in this way. He's praying that God would do the work in them that he has promised and guaranteed that he would do. That they would become mature, or in his words in verse 19, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is where we're going today. We are reading Paul's prayer for the saints. In verse 14, he says this, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. If I'm real honest, oftentimes when I pray this prayer for one another, for you or for myself or for others, my family members, I kind of pass by this first part here, these first couple of words in verse 14 and 15. But after working through it this week, man, I was convicted of both the importance and sweetness of the foundation and the helpfulness of these words as we hear Paul pray them, and then also as we should understand this is our approach in prayer. Because you do know that it's, it's possible to pray 
and it be not right, right? Like it's possible to just say words or to repeat something that someone's heard or like just even just pray scripture without any heart or understanding what you're actually doing. But Paul shows us, even as he introduces, as he starts to do this, he shows us how it is we ought to pray. Paul begins by anchoring his prayer in what he has already said. Look at that at the beginning. He says, for this reason. I mean, we should rightly ask, for what reason, Paul? I mean, what are you talking about? And usually when someone says that, it's just what they said beforehand, right? But if we look back in those previous verses at the beginning of chapter 3, we knew that he kind of took an aside to tell us about his administration responsibility to be an apostle and bring the good news of the revealed mystery to us, Gentiles. So that, that doesn't really make sense because he kind of goes off on a trail there. But then if we look at verse 1 of chapter 3, we see that he said the same thing. Right at the beginning, he says, for this reason. So now, of course, then we look back before that to find out what Paul is talking about. It would be fair for us to say that Paul is actually referring to all of chapters 1 and 2 and now comes to pray this prayer. But it's most likely that he is really pointing to us, pointing us to what happened in chapter 2. Both reconciliation with God in verses 1 through 10, but also in verses 11 through 22, the reconciliation that we have with one another. And so as we see this, we realize that he is showing us something that has been revealed to him, the mystery. But he is saying, I'm praying in light of this mystery being revealed. What he's doing, the mystery that's been revealed, the fact that Jew and Gentile has been made one in the body of Christ, is the reason he now prays for these saints. I mean, this means that the reality that Paul is explaining is not one that will come automatically, but through the growth and maturity of Christians and their interactions with one another as they are strengthened in Christ. In other words, all this stuff that he just showed us, this beauty and glory and the things that are happening in the church, in his people, are going to be happening in real time. And he is praying that these things would happen in real time, almost like he's saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, like you've told us it would be. Would you do that stuff for us now? I mean, if I can just step back for a minute, there's an immediate application for us here, immediate for us to understand. Paul doesn't pray for just random prayer requests or things that you know we might think that would be good for God to answer for us. Paul prays in line with the purposes of God. He recognizes what God is doing and he prays, get this, that God would do it. He understands it and says, okay, that means in real time in this place, who we are, Gentiles and Jews, actually are going to work this out. How in the world could that possibly be true? God, we need you to do it. And so he says, and so I pray for you, because you're the ones that are going to fill this very thing out. It's been said that if you sit with someone and you hear them pray, you can understand what they really care about. It's a little bit frightening if you listen to yourself pray and realize what the content of your prayers regularly are. What are your prayers like? What kind of things do you pray for? What kind, no, like when you talk to God, what do you pray about? In the, heart, in, in the deepness of your heart, what do you ask him for or talk to him about or consider or meditate upon? What are the things when you talk to God that you ask him for? It will show you right away what you care most about. I'm not saying that we can't pray for relevant things around us, but we certainly ought to be praying about even these things 
whether it's things that are happening at our job or in our families, very relevant things within the plan of God. If you were to take a minute, I'm sure that you could take a few minutes and you know the things, what God is doing and what he desires in your own life. I'm not talking about every single specific decision. I'm saying we know the will of God for our lives and obedience and growth to be like him, to be the church of Christ that is now showing the glory of God. I just take a minute to challenge us in application that our prayers ought to actually be shaped by what we learn in the scriptures. What God is concerned with, we ought also to be concerned with. Not only concerned, but learn to love and pray for. This is why we talk about praying for the will of God to be done. We want this to be true. And along the way, you gotta remember that not only is it true that we're praying for these things in petitions, He's also, get this, forming us and our desires and our understandings of who God is and what our desires ought to actually be. And by his Spirit's work, continually actually shaping us to be like him. So Paul's praying that God would do the work in real people that he has shown us already that he would do and promises that he will complete. And he's praying that it be done in real time in these Christians. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. So Paul takes a certain posture in this prayer that we ought to consider. First of all, he bows his knee. Now, it's not an uncommon way of praying, but it is not actually the usual way of praying. The usual way of praying was actually standing before God in reverence and praise to him. But what we're seeing here is actually a position of humility and great need. This is the same posture that Ezra took. In Ezra 9, 5 and 15, if you look, he was so uh, impressed with his smallness before God that he knelt. And he so keenly understood his need for God that he, this, in this way he took this humble submission posture to ask God to do these things. He has great humility, then Paul does as he asks for this, he has great humility before God. But the posture isn't only humble, it's also confident. It's this humble confidence in the one to whom he's praying. Look what he says. He calls him God the Father. What a title. I mean, for us, right, we think of a sweet and endearing title. Yes. But more in this, we're seeing one of, yes, some of closeness, love, but also of authority and also of power and the ability to actually protect and love. This is an important word that he uses and it's not as though he is only speaking to Jews here. He also includes all of them, all the people that would be his. Think about that next phrase, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I mean, this whole idea really rings of Matthew 6 and 7. If you remember this, we, we've gone through, we know if you're Matthew 6, you know you ought not to be concerned or worried. If he cares about the sparrows, he cares for you. But I'll read from Matthew chapter 7, these words that we so fondly remember considering the Father, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your God, Lord, everlasting one? No, look at the term. If you or are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This posture is one understanding himself before the Father who has both the love and power to actually act on Paul's behalf and on the Christian's behalf. And one more thing that we should see about Paul's posture is that 
he recognizes the source of it. Not God only, but he's going to expound on that. Look at verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant. He's like, it's not only God. Let me talk about how rich and deep his well is to give out of. He says this. In other words, Paul knows that God can give the church what they need because God has an abundance of riches that are limitless, as limitless as the very nature of God's glory. I mean, if we've paid attention in Ephesians, though, this shouldn't surprise us. We know that he's constantly acting out of the immeasurable greatness of his power, the abundance of his rich mercy, his glorious grace. We see it in 1.7, in 2.7, in 3.8 even says the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul knows the source well, and he says, this is what I call upon. He's confident that God can give this to the believers because there is an infinite well of riches of his glory. So this is the posture with which he brings us to praying to God and asking these requests. He's humble, confident, knowing both the goodness of his father and the unfathomable riches at his disposal. So now he turns to ask God for what as believers we need. He's going to ask for two main things. As we've, we've got, there's a lot of words here, but he's going to really ask for two main things in these next four verses. And then he's going to explain that with one final summarizing statement that we can understand what he's really getting at here. Number one, he is going to ask that God give these Christians strength in their inner beings. Number two, he's going to ask that God make them able to comprehend and experience the love of Christ. And then in summary... He will ask that these Christians be filled with all the fullness of God. So let's go through it. Let's look at it together. In verse 16, I'm going to read 16 and 17 to start. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, or let's give, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul asks that these Christians would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in their inner being. Let's just deal with that first. Let's just start here. Paul is asking for something that we cannot conjure up, something that's impossible for us to do. If we consider it, our strength is so puny. I mean, it's foolishness to think that we have almost any strength in and of ourselves. We need the strength of God to fulfill his purposes for the things that he asks of us in obedience and good works. We actually need God to give us strength in our inner man. So much so that's not something that we go and pluck out and insert and say, now I'm strengthened. No, he actually asked to ask the Spirit of God to do this. And by the inner man here, I want you to think um, 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16, where Paul reminds us, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, our inner man, our inner person is being renewed day by day. He's not talking about physical strength, that we would be strengthened to walk to do this or to go to work the next day, although we can certainly pray for strength in, in reality. But what he says, that he wants the Spirit to strengthen our inner man. The inner man, the very heart of who we are and must be, has to be strengthened by God himself. This power is not some random power out in the universe, some sort of energy. It's the power of God himself, not human power, a power that hopes to make a difference, but rather a power that will effect change. It will make a difference in the kingdom of God, even though those around us may not see that and understand that this power is actually at work. 
He prays that God would grant that we, that they should be strengthened with the power through the Spirit. So, I mean, the question is, how does one get this power? How is it possible that God would make this really happen in a Christian's life? We know that it's actually only through the work of the Holy Spirit in us who believe, who trust, that we'd be strengthened in our inner being. I mean, we know this already. We've already seen this in Christ's language, but then also he shows that he is working in us through the Holy Spirit. He told us this in Ephesians 2.22. In all of Paul's writings, we see that God works in real people, in real time and space, through the power of his Holy Spirit. This is how, then, we are actually strengthened. He goes on, though, to explain exactly what he means by this. He says that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is amazing. We've heard it all our lives, so it doesn't seem that big of a deal. This is incredible. This is where we get a clear vision of Paul's teaching on the spirit and our union with Christ. Again, not just theory, not just thoughts about what God is doing behind the veil. No, like it's actually happening in me and you in our inner being. This week in our live stream, uh, live stream, Jordan and I talked a lot about union with Christ and the connection there for that comes from the Spirit's work in us. We showed that from John 14 and 15 and other places that Jesus Christ is united with us through the work of his Holy Spirit. And to get to the point quickly, that's exactly what's happening here. Christ is not only choosing, back Ephesians 1.4, and redeeming and forgiving, although he is, He's also, by the work of the Holy Spirit, residing in his people, dwelling with us. It's actually happening right now. I mean, what does that mean for us to be strengthened through the Spirit in our inner being? It means that Christ is taking up residence or dwelling in our hearts. Remember, again, a better way to say is this idea of coming in and not just being a temporary visitor, but being one who is a resident, a dweller in God's house, in his people. It became uh, more and more popular for us, and, and we know it's true, it's not the, a wrong thing per se to say, but it becomes more and more popular to invite the Holy Spirit to kind of be at our event and kind of do the thing with us. Um, and, and sometimes we ask him to be with us in special ways or when we come together. And again, it's not a bad thing to ask God to work. We obviously want that to happen, but I think Paul's teaching here helps us understand a little bit more differently and more importantly the way we think of the Spirit of God and his work in us. Paul's words here are not that Jesus is some sort of traveler stopping by, giving us a little spiritual boost. That is not what he says here. This word is not something that he just randomly comes in when we ask him to do certain things, powers us up, and then we get enough juice to make sure we make it to the next time that we can get powered up again. This is different. He's talking about Jesus being a resident, a dweller in yours and my heart, in our inner man. I think this is probably where we get the phraseology about asking Jesus into our heart. You've probably heard that kind of a way of talking about, like, do you want to accept Christ into your heart? Ask Jesus to come into your heart. In a sense, like, that's how you get converted. That's how we know Jesus Christ. I don't think really the the underlying theology is bad at all. I think probably we're talking about the wrong part, though. We're talking that way about evangelism, but Paul is addressing Christians. 
telling us that we are to pray for one another, that God would strengthen us through his Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Uh, again, many of us kind of scoff at that idea of, you know, like that's not exactly the right theology. Well, actually he is telling us that we want to be strengthened in the fact that Christ would dwell in our hearts. He's saying to people who are Christians, I'm praying that Christ would set up house in your heart. How about you? I mean, really think about this for a minute. Does this make any sense to you of what you would think about in general, how you think about the Lord and how you grow? That you would desire Christ to so permeate your heart that it begins to look a lot more like him, not your version of him. Like it actually, you begin to change to be like a different person because he is dwelling in you. A few years ago, uh, well, the last year, a little over a year ago, we moved, but our previous house that we owned on Killington Arch uh, was a foreclosure. It was run down. The backyard looked like a jungle. Um, you know, there were termites. There was all kinds of work, to, like tile and gross stuff everywhere, linoleum. It was just a mess. Um, and we lived in the house for five years. And as we did so, we'd do little project by little project by little project. And by the time that we sold the house, um, it was absolutely beautiful. The house, if I can just for a moment uh, give credit where credit is due, began to look a lot like Kristen. It looked clean and organized and neat and useful. And the truth is the dwelling place took on a lot of the characteristics of the dweller. That's what we want. We want Jesus Christ living in us to change. Lord, do makeover. Do the whole thing. Like, bus driver, move that bus. I want this whole place to be changed. That should be our attitude to Christ coming and changing us so that we look more like Christ, not in a, a, a version of American Christianity. Who cares about that stuff? We want to actually look more and more like Christ as we dwell, as he dwells in us. We should desire then that Christ would do the same in us, that he would take up residence more and more, that it would be strengthened in our inner being so that we might look like Christ. Now, obviously, Christ is in us. We know that from the point of salvation. But we're seeing even here that Paul is praying for degrees of growth and maturity and even degrees of union with Christ as we grow closer and in him. We desire that God would strengthen us through his spirit in our inner man, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. I love that he puts this in here. Again, faith, something that we, as much as we can understand, do. We have to believe. We have to understand and do. But this whole process is being prayed for by Paul that God would do the work in us that would enact faith, that we would have Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. That means, again, it's not robotic. We're not sitting on the sidelines, but rather trusting, believing, obeying because we trust this person, Jesus Christ. In reality, Paul is away uh, praying that we would have an exercise faith in Christ. So it's not a bad thing to pray for faith for one another and not go and try to like, uh, um, convince someone of your position, but rather pray that the Lord would give them faith. What a sweet prayer. To round out this section, I just want to consider a few things. If you look here, you're going to see that there are the three persons of the Trinity working in our sanctification. He prays. Uh, to God, right, the Father, to be built up by God the Father, giving strength through the Holy Spirit, which means the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ to his people. 
In other words, we have the Trinitarian view of sanctification. All three, the persons of the Trinity working to make us more like Christ. It's wonderful. Let's move on, though. He says, before going to the next request, that we are rooted and grounded in love. What he's doing is actually just making sure that we understand a statement of reality. This is actually who you are. You've been rooted like a tree with its roots way down deep in the love of God and founded, or there's another word, grounded, either one is fine, as a house is founded on a, a, a site where there's footers and properly dug places. He's saying your founding is in the love of God. He's not a stranger to this love. He knows it and has every reason to look to God as the loving God, a giving God, a blessing, a keeping, a securing God. He says then that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. His second request is that these Christians would have strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ. But really, that's kind of the stripped-down version. He prays for all the saints. Look at that, interesting in light of what he just talked about with the Jews and Gentiles being one, right? He's praying for all the saints that they would know and have strength to grasp, understand, comprehend the vastness of Christ's love. And his explanation is really awesome. I mean, he, he can't even finish the statement without like saying more about it. He can't help himself. These believers need strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. In all ways, in every different dimension, he's saying it's so big, not only can it, like, a human can hardly understand it, actually they can't. They need strength from God to understand and comprehend the love of Christ. But it isn't just head knowledge. It's an, not just intellectual stuff. What he's saying here is an experiential knowing of the love of Christ. Notice that he changes his word when he goes to this next phrase, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. By the way, you got to see that. Even in English, we can see it, right? He, he plays on the word know and knowledge. Do you see that there? He says, I, I love this. He says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Only a powerful work of the Spirit could break through our human understanding to know the love of God like this. This is a different, again, like I said, different than comprehend. This is a term close, intimate relationship. The Bible even talks about this as how a, a husband and wife know one another and how God knows his people. It's an intimate experience, understanding each other. And this is the way that he prays that we might know the love of Christ. It's deep, interpersonal knowing. And this is the way that Paul wants us and, and the believers here to experience the love of Christ. Because he knows, get this, if he knows, if, if they will know the love of Christ and experience this to be true, their lives will be changed forever. Again, it's more than just knowing the facts and the doctrine and the rules and the commandments. He's saying that you have experienced the love of Christ, that you are overwhelmed by the fact the one that you hated and rebelled against gave his son to die for you. We're talking about the gospel, that you would know experientially the love of Christ and that it will forever change you. I'm not saying you'll never sin again. I'm saying that forever you understand who God is and his love for you. And if we continue to progress in knowing this God, it will mature us. It will make us more like Christ. 
In short then, Paul desired these two things for us, that we'd be strengthened in our inner being and that we would know the love of Christ. But then he finishes with this final statement to kind of bring it all together. What are you really getting at here, Paul? What are you trying to say? Where are you headed? End of verse 19 says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is all about the maturity of a Christian in godliness. Now, if you think for a minute about our church mission statement, which is, comes from Colossians 1, 28 and 29, we're seeing this exact same thing in a little bit of a different way. We desire, of course, to present everyone perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. Mature, complete, perfect, grown up in Christ. Consider, actually, that that's what Paul is saying here, that we would be filled up with the fullness of God. That is a crazy thing to pray. <laughs> we would be filled up with the fullness of God. Is he saying that we become gods or that we become God? No, that we are being filled up in this way. And again, how in the world does he do such a thing? We aren't talking about becoming gods, but growing in God-likeness. Or we would say, because we know the human form, word made flesh, in Christ-likeness. That we would look more and more like Jesus Christ. And that we would be, in our innermost being, more like Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to get to this soon, but consider the words of Ephesians 4.13 probably know this. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to, right to the end, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What Paul is referring to when he says to be filled up with the fullness of God is that we would be mature as believers. This is then our standard. That's our goal. It's the end for which we were created to be filled up with the fullness of God. And Paul is praying that God would make these Christians, therefore, mature in Christ. So I'll ask you, what should we then, this is what we do then, what should we do with this passage as we watch Paul pray for them? I, I'm, there, there's two things I think we ought to at least get a hold of here. First of all, although chapter 1 and 2 are true and the foundation of how we live it out, Ephesians doesn't end with chapter 2. There is much practical application to come, which we will get into in the following weeks and months. But here, as we see, Paul prays that God would do this work. It's so important that he is saying that Christian growth is a priority for us. Brother or sister, it is not okay for you to be a Christian and never progress in holiness. It's not. He has made you one with Christ. He has called you to this very thing. And this is what, I can tell you this, this is what your shepherds and elders pray for you about. That you would therefore do these things as well. Being strengthened in your inner being. Understand and know the love of Christ. If I can just throw it out this way, don't settle for being immature. Don't settle for ever being a Christian baby or a Christian toddler. Thinking that that's okay. It's not. He calls us to maturity and continually to grow in these ways. I'll just remind us again, though, this is really my second application. We can't do that just by knowing. The only way that this happens is by God working in us. And call, Paul really calls us to pray for one another and to pray for ourselves. If this is something we cannot do by knowledge alone, and when we just try our best and we know we can't do it, we ought not to like raise our hands and say, well, we did our best. He shows us the avenue to take to call on God to work in us, to do the work of spiritual maturing, 
to have Christ reside in our hearts so that we would look more like him and love him and be like him. Again, going then and aiming for the fullness of God. Began by talk, we began today by talking about raising a newborn to, into adulthood, raising a child to be a king, about helping them to be mature. But when you and I think about it in a, a human context, we usually think about it getting that person to the point where they're independent, where they're going away and they're okay. They're a responsible adult. They're able to do good work and, and take care of themselves and be completely separated from their parents in a good way. Very different from what's going on here, notice. This is not so in the Christian walk. In an ironic twist, really, our maturity, if you think about it, is the exact opposite. The way that we become more and more mature is as we lose our independence and become more and more dependent on God. Think about John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. How do you bear fruit? By going off and doing your own thing? No, by abiding in me, by being close and finding all your strength. The only way that you can bear fruit is in me. So brothers and sisters, I just encourage you, your independence is not what you're after. Rather, death to independence, but rather life is found in Christ alone. Our one that we can only be dependent on and therefore we will bear fruit out of. So as we continue to pursue maturity and pray for one another, Look to Christ. John said, John the Baptist says, if you remember, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. I think this is right for us. Paul isn't encouraging us to become more independent, but rather depend solely on the one who secures our salvation. He prays that God would in a greater way strengthen us, having Christ take up residence within our hearts through faith, experiencing the love of Christ so deeply affected that we are being filled up with the fullness of Christ. This is what we're called to. Let us then joyously pursue this as an end. Let's pray together. Christ, you will build your church. And for this, we are so thankful. And as we learned today, we pray that you would build your church. God, would you bring our children to know Jesus Christ and to love him? Would you bring our neighbors to know Jesus Christ? Would you make us faithful, full of faith to love you, to trust you alone? Would you strengthen us in our inner beings? Lord, would you give us the ability and the power to comprehend and to know the love of Christ that we might be filled up with the fullness of God. God, teach us to pray this prayer and to love you with our whole hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.